It's time for Cover 2 Broncos. Just a couple dudes breaking down scheme, film, and the numbers. Now, your hosts, Joe Rowles. Welcome back to another episode of Cover 2 Broncos. I am Joe Rowles, and today I am fortunate to be joined by two special guests. I had the pleasure to reach out and talk to Expand the Box Scores, Searle Penn and Paul Duncan. Welcome to Cover 2 Broncos. Thanks for joining, guys. Thanks for having us on, yo. Yep, thanks for having us on. Um, Loyal listeners, new listeners, people listening, I know that it is draft season, and you guys are keen on figuring out who the Broncos should take. I can't recommend Expand the Box Scores Draft Guide enough. It came out last week. I got it. Immediately, I have gone through. I poured over. I made notes. I've looked for scheme fits for just about every prospect I could find on there for the Broncos needs. Um, I reached out to these guys to pick their brains. I am stoked. Um, but first, before we do that, I want to, I want to hear from you guys, how you got involved with this project. Cause like, it's, I think it's the best draft guide I've seen in a long, long time for a number of reasons. Even like, first of all, the way you guys actually are grading the prospects. I love it because from a numerical standpoint, then, it makes it really easy for me to have a frame of reference. So like, for example, if you think, and again, I'm not saying that, you, I'm not going to spoil anything, but let's say you said Trevor Lawrence's mobility was a one. Well, now I know that you think he's slow and I can judge based on what I see where you're at. We can have a discussion. I can come. So for me, what, what I believe a draft guide is supposed to do, it's supposed to inform, but also it's supposed to provide a frame of reference to go forward because that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to educate. And your guys' guide does that perfectly. And it's more thorough than basically every other guide I've seen the last couple of years. Yeah. So um, how it started was uh, it was me and I was trying, essentially trying to write scouting reports so that when I go down to the uh, senior bowl, I can show whichever media and scout person that I would say um, that I would see and just be like, here are my scouting reports. I understand how to, uh, I understand how to scout. And um, I tried writing a draft guide by myself, and I realized very, very quickly how difficult it is to watch hundreds of players as being one person. So I was only able to get 15 in time by the Senior Bowl, showed it to some scouts, made like a nice little booklet, got some, uh, got got good reviews on it, but like I, it really wasn't getting much movement. But I also met Searle, and Searle and I both worked at Sports Info Solutions at a um, at different times, and all of the methods that I'm um, that were made were just me taking what I learned from Sports Info Solutions and what they did over there, and just taking out all of the stuff that I thought didn't really make sense or that I thought was outdated or I thought was unnecessarily confuse um, unnecessarily confusing, and took it out and added some stuff to make me understand. Uh, like for me to be able to communicate things a little easier. And then since like what we were doing was very similar, um, Searle was able to pick up the system real quick. And uh, we recruited a whole bunch of other scouts who came, who were mostly like the part-timers who grind at Sports Info Solutions and PFF. So that was kind of how, um, what, where the methods came from. They're NFL based because what SIS uses is based off of what like Joe Banner used to do, I believe. And there are teams in the NFL who have similar systems we found out. And um, so we know that our system is based off of professionalism. Like we, a lot of us want to become NFL scouts. We want to be as professional as possible, as little fluff as possible. And we think we kind of were able to balance out the needs of 
the NFL people so we can like send it to NFL scouts we may have networked with and it can still be read by uh, fans who love football. Yeah. And so we really wanted to give people like a frame of reference with our beginning thing of the trade scale to where everyone's on the same page. Like we know what this grade is Mm -hmm. so that when we're talking about a guy, we can say, Oh, he's a seven at this trait because of blah, blah, blah. And Mm -hmm. somewhere in that, if it says, Trevor Lawrence has a seven short accuracy. There should be something in that report that tells you why Trevor Lawrence has that seven there. There's going to be no one thing that I would tell our scouts um, when we were first working on this project is tell me why he deserves a seven. Don't tell me that he deserves a seven. Give me the how and why give me the process of what it takes to be there because that's really the process is what's going to translate better. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that uh, we were able to do through doing that is really give this a frame of reference for people and put people in the position as you're a GM. Like you said, Joe, you can have that discussion. That's what the scouts bring to the table initially when they're talking to it's the scouts, the GM and the coaches all come together and they have a discussion and they hash out what they think the player really is. So this guide is us being the scouts saying, hey, we're bringing this to you, to the public. We're putting you in the position of now you're the GM. Now you can hash this out with us and find the decisions that you want to make. So if you're a Broncos guy, you go through this. We just gave you all the info that you need to take what you have seen of these prospects, compare it to what we have, and come to a full understanding of the player. Yeah, and I I, I love it. One thing that I learned from Dan Hatman with the Scouting Academy is you have to paint a picture. Um, and and you don't want to leave a lot of room for, for confusion because as soon as you leave that, that space where people can kind of go off the grid, people end up all over the place. And that's where a lot of issues come up when teams make decisions on players. And I think that's where a lot of confusion happens for draft prospects. And that's, and that's always been, and again, I don't, I'm not trying to like slam other guides or anything like that, but, but when they're not thorough enough or when they do, when they leave too much up in the air it ends up leading to fans having very, very different opinions on players. And your guy doesn't do that. It, it makes it very clear. Like this is where we're at on it. If you disagree, we can, mm-hmm. you, know, you can then see where you disagree, but this is what we see. And I, and I love that. One of the, I, go ahead. One of the things that I ma- made sure to say to all of the scouts that were working on this originally is if someone was reading this to me and I was closing my eyes, if I can't picture the player based on the strengths and weaknesses in my head, then you haven't done a good enough job. And so I think that I, I'm tremendously proud of the work we've done because I think all of these 323 reports, I can picture the player after I read that. And that's how I know that our scouts did a good job. Exactly. There are no, there are no bad reports in this book. Like there, none of them, none of them were rushed. They all got like edited. They've all been reviewed. We've all had like the conversations and like the Google, the Google notes, like editing thing of like, I think this is a, uh, you say it's a six, but in the uh, text, it sounds a little bit more like a five kind, um, kind of ordeal. And yeah, like that's kind of what happens when like we started like summer scouting in like June. So we were all together for a long time and we had that time to really like train and grill every um, grill and make sure everybody knows the differences between trait grades and how to uh, explain players. And I think this is the manifestation of good prep, um, a good base um, and good preparation and working hard and actually doing it. 
Yeah, and Paul and I can't be the people who take all the credit for oh, training. Um, there were a ton of people who helped us out. We had former NFL scouts, um, people who work with the CFL as position coaches, different people who would come in and talk to us about like how do we evaluate certain positions, like offensive line play. Justin Poindexter, who uh, Matt Bookmeyer put us in touch with, shout out to Justin because he was awesome with helping us with our understanding of certain offensive line schemes that we wouldn't necessarily have known exactly um, what kind of like vertical distortion you exactly want this offensive lineman to have on a certain, on a certain play and whether that's wrong or right. And having the better understanding of that gave us the ability to say, okay, in this scheme that I'm seeing them play in, what are they being asked to execute and how are they executing it? and what conditions can they execute under or not. Exactly, and having those people on, like all of us on the team, we know football, we've been watching football for a while, but there's so many details that you learn. It's like the more you learn about football, the more you learn that you don't know what you're talking about. It's um, So yeah, the more you learn, the more you learn that you, uh, the things that you don't know. And that's why it's just so great to be able to have like these people who are like coaches and come from that background to kind of help give you new vocabulary words so you can like see what's happening on film, be able to recognize a certain technique being good or bad and put uh, and have that be a sent uh, sentence in your, um, in your report. That was, that was one of some of my favorite things is learning more and more about the finer details of football. Cause it's just such a fun like adventure, just learning more. Well, and that's one of those things for me that's been really helpful too, is because a lot of these reports, a lot of, a lot of reports that I read, you know, just around the web, you get, you get kind of an idea, but then you, you start to think to yourself, like, I'm very familiar with what the Broncos run, but I'm not necessarily, I haven't watched since, I haven't watched 11 games of Cincinnati. So like knowing what the Broncos run, if I read a report, if it doesn't make it pretty clear, like what they were doing, I have to go watch Cincinnati to make sure not only that, like say James Hudson looks, however, I hope he looks, but also that he's using techniques and he's doing things that I think will translate. And one thing I love about your guide is it lays out what he was doing for Cincinnati or what Trevor Lawrence was asked to do in the offense for Clemson. And, and I th again, I think for a fan or I think for honestly anybody, I think that's really helpful because again, like most fans aren't going to watch 300 players before they, but they're going to talk about them. And, and I know you guys know that and everybody has a guy, but now reading this, it gets an idea of like one other thing I really love that you guys do. And this is something the scout Ac scouting Academy does that I think is great too is that the traits do boil down to a numerical grade. Um, and, and the descriptions help to get you to the numerical grade. And what that does is it makes it so you can actually stack a board and you can see where the guy really falls. Um, and then not only do you guys do that, but I love that the guide lays out what the trait number means and then also what critical traits go into making that grade. And I think that's a, it's, it's very transparent and it makes it very easy to see how it's, how it's made. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Like that was just one of the um, like when you scout for one team, you're going to have like your certain team methods. You're going to have the certain schemes and the certain critical traits that you look uh, look for. But when you're scouting for every team, you kind of have to like actually game plan for what exactly the traits you want to look for are and like how um how you want to take into account like all the different uh scheme fits and i've i've seen it a bunch with other people's grading systems where they will they're almost like confined by it like they'll uh 
they'll watch two different players. They'll like player A better, but they'll have player B with a higher grade because that's just the corner they kind of back themselves into with having different trait grades add up or things of that nature. But uh, we, we decided to go the route, which is what I believe NFL teams do, of having your trait grades and your final grades separated, having your uh, trait grades be comparing with the college player to where they will fit in um, first year on an NFL team, having the final grade be a representation of what role you would expect them to play as a rookie. So with that in mind, and just for this, how do you guys decide on what traits were critical and what traits weren't? Or what traits were critical and what traits were secondary, not weren't? So, yeah, we talked with a lot of different people to, we, we had some traits in mind, like with offensive linemen, like we know that reactive athleticism is gonna be number one. Like, we know that that's the most important thing. An offensive lineman needs to be able to mirror and match their foes. Uh, but some of the other traits, like what should be more critical, what should be more secondary, that was helped a lot by guys like Ron Seleski, who was our scouting advisor, um, who previously was the GM of the, uh, what are they, the Al- or the Birmingham Iron, and he was the GM of the Tampa Bay Vipers. So he had a ton of experience um, being able to assess players at all sorts of different positions. And he and a few other people like Mike Riddleman uh, was a big help. Justin Poindexter again. But guys, we sent them what our traits were and asked them, hey, how do you view the traits? What do you typically look for? And then based on the feedback that we got from those three to five different people that we sent these to, we sort of organized terms of importance of what everyone thought. And then at, at the end, we, we kind of took our own liberties to decide which ones were gonna be at the bottom of the critical or at the bottom of secondary. Uh, what, one of the things with quarterback that uh, it was tough with is that we wanted to put leadership in the critical section, but it can be very hard to decipher a quarterback's leadership capabilities from just film. And we didn't want to be leading anyone, no pun intended with that, in the wrong direction by putting leadership as a top critical trait and saying, because we had leadership for best in class on leadership, it's Ian Book. And that's one of the reasons why we think that Ian Book is gonna make a team. We don't think that Ian Book's leadership capabilities are going to make him more qualified than someone who has good decision-making like Justin Fields, our best in class decision-maker based on just the film. And we don't exactly know 100% about how good of a leader these people really are because we're not in the locker room. The one thing that we didn't have that scouts did this year um, with, it was a pretty level playing field for guys making draft guides this year because scouts couldn't really go on the road either. Mm -hmm. So with us having coaches film, um, and us going to all-star events just the same way that scouts did, it really leveled the playing field in terms of like what we saw on film. But the one thing is we don't have the connections with all of the position coaches. Like even if we, even the few position coaches that we did talk to, we're not necessarily going to get the most straight answer mm-hmm. that a coach who has cultivated that relationship for the last 10 years is going to get. So there's a few things that we don't know and we can't know. And because of that, we tried to leave those sorts of things in secondary or leave them out of the traits that we, we uh, looked at overall. That makes sense. Definitely makes sense. So 
from there, I guess I got, I kind of have to, I want to talk to you about the prospects because again, like I have notes upon notes upon notes. Yeah. Upon, you know, all, yeah. Um, so, and I got to start here just because it's probably the biggest question facing the Broncos. How do you guys kind of sort out the quarterback class? And do you, are there quarterbacks in this class that you think may be available at nine, first of all, that could step in day one and potentially be a starter for the Broncos? Um, because as of now, and I, I think we all probably agree, Trevor Lawrence is probably going number one. So I don't think he's like a realistic option for the Broncos. And so like everybody else maybe, but who, who do you guys think could step in day one and start? And is there anybody that the Broncos should feasibly kind of consider trading up for if it's possible? Oh, give it away on Wilson. All right. So, um, yeah, Trevor Lawrence is an instant franchise uh, instant franchise quarterback. We know that. We also very much like Justin Fields. We I feel that a lot of the draft community is overthinking him. It's like the guy's accurate, the guy's athletic, he has a good arm, and a lot of the stuff that people are criticizing him about staring down first reads kind of falls under, well, that's just kind of what he's been asked to do at the yeah. college offense, kind of like I mean, Herbert had a lot of the same issues when he was in those systems. So we're, we consider Justin Fields the franchise-level quarterback as well. I did the report on Zach Wilson, and I see why people are in love with him. He completes 30-yard go routes from the far hash like most quarterbacks complete slants. It's just easy for him. He puts it right on the muddy. That It's a throw that will translate to the NFL, putting the ball um, deep and in tight spots consistently. But it, he's not like the perfect prospect. I don't really see why people would have him over somebody like Lawrence or Fields because his, there, there, are, there are real issues there. Uh, one, I, we, we kind of felt he trusted his arm a little too much. And like with all sports, super spectacular tight window throws that's like three millimeters away from a pick on some of these some of these cases so I, I think like some of these windows are going to be even tighter than these spectacular throws where he puts it right on the money with better players might uh, might end up getting picked um his decision making in the pocket was kind of questionable as well um he had some uh, we called them like johnny manzel moments but not like the good johnny manzel moments where he's just kind of running around in the pocket just he really wants to make a play and you know sometimes he can at the college level but it's not like the kind of thing that you would expect to work at the nfl level and his pocket mechanics are just really kind of janky it's like his release is really nice, but his footwork was just kind of choppy. He can be th um, throwing off of his back foot or front foot or not having his hips point the right way as often as I'd like. So while, I mean, I'd be comfortable with Zach, uh, Zach Wilson starting as a rookie, I kind of more feel he might be one of those guys who might not win the job right away as he's kind of learning the playbook and getting uh, getting his feet wet. But like the second the start, uh, starter has a bad game, he's going to get get kind of put out there. It's like, I, re I really like him. I think he can do well, but there are there are some issues below the surface that will need to get worked out. Yeah, and I'm not sure if Wilson is going to even make it to nine. Yeah. So I yeah. think like I think your question um, really more revolves around whether you, whether we think that Lance or Mac Jones can be the guy. And luckily, I did the reports for both of those guys, so I have a very firm understanding of both of them. And they're both basically two polar opposite prospects. Um, it in terms of 
the guy that's more ready to start right away, I think it's pretty clearly Mac Jones. Um, Mac Jones, I have described as a very accurate distributor of the football who is going to feed your playmakers and put them in optimal positions to succeed. And one of the things Denver does have a lot of playmakers. So that's not a bad fit for him overall. Um, Whether he should actually go ninth or not, I'm not sure. Uh, I gave him a four on throw power, but it's probably the highest four that we gave anyone on throw power because he's a guy who can, he can hit those 40 yard passes and he shows the ability to throw to all fields like pretty well. But the thing is he can't really hit those with zip. He can't really put much mustard on his throw beyond 10 yards. Um, Even in positions where he needed to, he was unable to. And so I saw that as potentially problematic, which is the definition of our four. Um, So I, while I like Mac Jones, I think he's just more of a limited guy. Now I think 10 years ago when the pocket passers were more in vogue and quarterbacks weren't asked to make plays out of structure as much. This is a guy who's a surefire top 10 guy who you would love to have at nine. Um, But I I think he's a guy who he's not going to make plays out of structure he doesn't have the athleticism you necessarily want. Um, his throw power isn't great, but everything else, he's, he's ready to go. Um, with Lance, it's kind of the opposite. He's the youngest quarterback in the draft. I think he'll be – he might be 21, like right before draft night. I think his yep. birthday is in April. Yep. Um, he's, a, he's a baby. Yeah. He has a huge arm. He's – are we allowed to curse on here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's he's fast <laughs> as shit. Um, and he's – I honestly gave Lance a weird comparison when I first watched him. I, I said that he's Derek Carr coming out with Vince Young athleticism, which I think is a great player. Um, but I think he can be a little timid. I think he tends to lock on – he has a lot of those problems that you'll see with a young quarterback. And, I mean, when you're watching redshirt freshman tape – so those are the things you'd expect. Like he locks in on his first read. Um, he tucks and runs when his first read isn't there. He's not doing any, not executing more than a half field read in their offense. And they're watching a guy from North Dakota state. It's tough because they're just outclassing their opponents in every facet of the game. Like his guys are wide open. And in those games where the holes started to tighten up, in the playoff games, like if you watch the championship game against James Madison, he was errant as a thrower. He was didn't have the confidence in his ability to fit balls into tight windows, even though he had previously shown on other films that he can show pretty good ball placement uh, consistently. Like when the windows tighten up, he's a little afraid of that. Uh, he's afraid of making those mistakes. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he had such a low turnover rate is that he almost refuses to put the ball in harm's way. So I, I think this is a guy, Land, who has the talent to be as good as any of the two and three guys. Like, I think he can – I see why people, like some people, like uh, our own Andy Singleton, the head of Expand the Box Score, has Lance as his number two guy. And, you know, Lance might have the second best talent, like just in terms of raw talent. I hate saying that phrase, but – um, it's true. He, he might be the number two guy in this class in terms of what his ceiling can be, but 
he's not a guy who is starting year one. And I think if you put Lance in, like in with the Broncos, you'd give him that pressure to start year one. Yes, you would. And I, I think that that's a, a position where he could potentially falter, even though what's around the Broncos would be good for him. I, if you're telling me the Broncos are taking him at nine and they're willing to sit him for all of year one and still see what they have in Drew Locke, go for it. Take him at nine. But if you're going to say, hey, we're taking him at nine and we're going to start him by game five because we're not sold on Drew Locke at all, then I think that that's uh, a potential disaster. Although it could work out, but I think that's more of a 50-50 proposition. So last thing last thing on quarterbacks, because I, I have to ask because Paul set it up, if Justin Fields falls to nine, would the Broncos be stupid to pass on him? Yes. Okay. There's other positions, obviously. Outside of quarterback, the most obvious need the Broncos have is corner. Um, they just cut A.J. Boye. Even before they cut A.J. Boye, it looked like a huge need. They had 10 corners start last year. Bryce Callahan has never played in a full season yet. He's actually really good. He just gets hurt a lot. And again, like I, it is what it is. But they and he's also thirty on the last year of his deal. Like they have a short term meet at corner and they have a long term meet at corner. Um, I have seen a lot yeah. of people say that this class is essentially three deep. Do you think that is that's it? Like, do you think this is a bad Maybe, class? Or is... No, we, no, we think it's opposite. a good corner class. We we think that at, in the first round it's three deep, sure. And I mean, of the guys that the Broncos would even consider taking at nine. There's only two of them, right? It's going to be Farley or Sertan. And our wrap on Farley versus Sertan is that Sertan is going to be the better player right now. He has the higher floor. Um, He's a guy who's ready to come in and contribute. I think that in that zone match scheme that Fangio runs, he's ideal for that scheme. Um, You would hope that he would go to a scheme where they press a little more because his technique is so good, but he doesn't have to. He's not reliant on that at all. But then Farley, who, um, spoiler alert, we have the higher grade on, just barely, uh, is just the more athletic prospect with the higher ceiling. Farley has real, like, CB1 qualities. The fact that he's only played the corner position for really two years, high school QB who came to Virginia Tech as a wide receiver, he just looks so natural out there. His hips are so fluid. He has amazing ball skills down the field. He's got that athleticism that you want to be able to match up with guys deep. He's got size. Um, he, he's a guy who has basically like every major trait that you're going to want in a guy. So uh, Farley's probably the better player, but if you're tra- playing a win right now and for the scheme fit, I think that Sertan is the better fit there. So that's going to be an internal debate that the Broncos front office is probably waging back and forth if they're seriously considering corner right there. So maybe a stupid question, but I, I want to ask because I've had people ask me this and you guys are going to be able to answer it in a better way than I can. Corners in the NFL play both zone and man. Like even the most man intensive defenses, you're still going to run some zone. So when yep. when a scout says a corner is a zone corner or a corner is a man corner, what what are they really talking? Like what are they saying? Or how does it, what does that mean to you, I um, guess? And I know that's kind of putting you on the what? spot, but – when they're saying a guy's a zone corner, what they really mean is he's bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the most rough and brutal way to put it. Um, what I've heard is that scouts don't go to position coaches 
saying, hey, do you have a zone corner? Because you can find zone corners at the bottom of the draft. Um, but guys who can actually man up, because, I mean, if we're if we're talking down the field, all zone eventually becomes man. man. Like yep. you're eventually manning up with guys. So if you can't do that down the field, you're going to have some struggles. That's, that's one of the things um, that I've been seeing with uh, Cam Bynum, who we have a high grade on. I think we may be the highest uh, of anyone on him, but he is a guy who really only fits in a zone heavy system as a boundary guy. So he's one of those guys where like, we have a good grade on him because we see him. We tried to project all these guys to their, their best grade player. in their best system. Yep. Yeah. So we see him as that grade in the system that he would function in as that zone boundary corner. But are we actually, if we're GMs, going to take him over Efetu Melifonwu, who's just the better man corner but has the same grade as him? We're probably going to take Melifonwu. Um but if if we're saying, hey, we need this exact role that Cam Bynum is perfect for, then we're going to put Bynum in that role. That makes sense. Uh, going back to when I was doing Scouting Academy, one of the things with our grading system is uh, uh, Dan Hatman actually even told me, he was like, all zone becomes man. So we don't, like, he didn't even, I wasn't even, like, really, I was evaluating it, but I was evaluating it as part of other traits. Uh, mm-hmm. On our scouting sheet, it was actually only man, and it was the ability to ma- match and mirror, and then, like, stuff off of it, mm-hmm. obviously. But but I thought it blew my mind the first time he talked to me about that because I was like, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. But I never thought about it. Um, but I know a I lot had of- never thought about it. I had never thought about it either until I was coaching high school football, and these high school DBs were asking me like, oh, what do I do in in zone coverage while I'm down the field? And I'm like, well, at that point, you're in man coverage, and that's like light bulb boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with that in mind, the, can the Broncos do run a lot of zone match and they run a lot of zone? Like Fangio has a reputation, uh, whether fair or not, his defense going back forever has always had a reputation that they don't need corners and like quotation marks really heavy there. Um, obviously I don't think that's true, but his defense does it. I think his defense places more emphasis on the safeties than it does the corners. Um, but with that Definitely. in mind, yeah. And he also tends to take a lot. He tends to take a lot of guys who seem to fit as nickels for other schemes. I've noticed that too. Who stands out to you as other guys, having watched Fangio's defense now probably a decent mm-hmm. bit, who stands out to you guys as other corners that should jump out to Broncos country? Oh, well, so I've studied a ton of Fangio's time with the Niners, actually. So I'm well familiar with uh, the days when they had Deshaun Golson. Paris Cox. And Dante, Dante Hittner and Carlos Rogers. Like I'm, I'm very familiar with what you're putting down with an emphasis on safeties and a de-emphasis on corners. Um, and I think that's shown through with like Justin Simmons, just absolutely producing as soon as Fangio got there, like um, you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head there. So I think you're right in terms of there is a potential de-emphasis on cornerbacks. And I think that might lead, Broncos fans to be a little bit upset when the Broncos do potentially pass on a corner um, at nine overall, but there's guys in, in the second round who think um, the Broncos fans will be happy once they get there. Um, you were saying a guy, he, he likes guys who are fits as nickels in other schemes. That's Elijah Molden to a T um, Elijah Molden, the Washington kid. 
he's a guy that a lot of people like. He just really instinctual and great spatial awareness, which is perfect for that match. Um, he's got really quick feet, and he can match up against those tight ends that the Broncos are going to need to match up with mm-hmm. uh, in the AFC West. So I, I think Elijah Molden in the second round could be a, a potentially pretty good guy. Paul, do you have one for him? Oh, I absolutely do. Um, and it's Sean Wade. Uh, there is a thing that I've noticed in the scouting community is a player starts shooting up the boards or has high expectations, but then the second he doesn't really meet those expectations, instead of going back down to like what he was like the previous year, he like goes down like all the way down. It's like it's written off the draft boards. I've seen some people call Sean Wade like a day three type prospect now. No, he's... When I was watching him, I really kind of thought that his uh, decline was greatly exaggerated. One, in 2019, he looked very, very comfortable as a nickel. He looked very uh, comfortable in man, like pressing on um, being up close on slot corners who are on the line. Just has incredible athleticism to just always be in the hip pocket of wide receivers. It was just that he was just on the wrong end of some contested catches. Like his ball skills weren't, weren't really there. And uh, Dotson from Penn state just had some incredible catches that put on the highlight tapes and that's what everybody is seeing. And, and that's what the uh, things are going off of. But when you have a corner who is that athletic and showed as a nickel that he can be productive. Sure, he took a step back on um, as a wide corner, but I still think there is a chance that, one, you can draft him in the second or third round, have him be a nickel defender, and if he is able to work his way to being an outside corner, great. If he doesn't and he stays a nickel, nickel an impact nickel for his rookie contract, that's still great because teams play nickel uh, four two fives in nickel packages 60 to 80% of the time. So I really feel that there would be va- uh, value for Sean Wade um, in as like a second or third rounder just off of his athleticism and his ability to limit separation with both speed and his general quickness. And, and Joe, I'm going to give one guy who's a day three guy who I think does really fit the Broncos uh, to a T, who's a guy who – this is a, a nugget for all the listeners out there of the guys you can expect to find in our book. Guy who is not on the boards of – Almost all these draft picks, uh, I can't speak for the ones, the the guides who have like 500, 700 prospects. They probably have him. But these like 200 and 300 uh, prospect guides, there's, there's no way they're going to have a guy. Brandon Stevens out of Southern Methodist. So I was a scouting assistant at the College Gridiron Showcase this year. And Brandon Stevens, one of our duties as a scouting assistant is to get players for different scouts. Brandon Stevens was the most popular player in attendance at the College Gridiron Showcase. My man was dressed in a suit. He was interviewing every single team. Every team wanted to talk to him so badly that there were coaches that were upset. I would walk over to scouts and say, hey, uh, anyone that I can get you? They would just grumble, Brandon Stevens isn't answering any of my texts, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, well, I know for a fact he's in like seven interviews at one point. Uh, my roommate who was there with me as well, Robert Simpson, another scout who worked on this book as well. Uh, he had to tell scouts, hey, let this guy eat dinner. He's been interviewing for seven straight hours. Let him get over here to eat dinner before they close up shop. He had to like tell them to back up. And man, that that guy. So after seeing that, we're like, who is this guy? Like, we need to 
we need to check him out. Like, let's get him in the book. Um, we had one of our scouts watch him who wasn't there, so he wouldn't be biased at all. He had no idea that this was a popular guy. Um, and we found out that Brandon Stevens, he's a he was a UCLA running back who converted to corner when he came to SMU. And he seems based on I haven't watched this player personally, but I trust the scouts evaluation who did this very well. I've known him for a while. He's a guy who seems like he's a perfect fit in that Broncos scheme where he's a, a big zone coverage guy who has great zone instincts to peel off his guys and make plays in other zones, um, carries his zone drops upfield really well, keeps his eyes on the QB and flows in the direction of the play. Uh, very quick guy with good uh, agility and just an instinctual guy with great ball skills. That seems like the type of guy you want in that you at least want to take a chance on on day three in a scheme like Fangio's. Definitely. Well, now I'm going to have to try and get some tape of him. So, so I appreciate that. Uh, since we're on the, we're in the, we're in the DB room. So I figure we'll move to safety next just because safety for me is one of the hardest things with draft, most draft guys, because they'll, they'll give you, they'll give you a small glimpse of what the guy's role is. But a lot of times, unless it's really notable, it's, it's like an afterthought. You get maybe a sentence about it. And you guys actually will say, like, he did split zone, he did free safety, he did extensive box work. Like, you actually have an idea of what he's doing because Fangio runs a lot of too high. Like, Fangio and then Brandon Staley, now obviously with the Chargers, they were atypical compared to the rest of the league because of it. So the way that Fangio has evaluated safeties over the years, he got Adrian Amos, and I think I want to say the fifth round. I might be wrong. I think it was either the fifth or the sixth. But, like, he's been able to steal safeties for a long time. But at the same time, he emphasizes them. When he was with the Niners, they took safeties in the second quite a bit. Like, it's an important position for his defense. And because Kareem Jackson's getting older and he's on an expiring contract, again, it's a short-term need because he they don't have a lot of depth, but it's also a long-term need. Um, I know the top of the class. I know a couple of the guys. But I want to hear what you guys think of the class as a whole. And then who jumps out at you as guys who could be good in a too-high scheme? Sure. Paul, you want to take this one? Um, well, the two guys I watched were definitely uh, not good for a too high scheme. Me, um, <laughs> uh, one of the guys is probably not good in, in very many schemes. Uh, I had a tra- um, I had Trey Norwood, who I think kind of more fits maybe in kind of like that Sean, uh, like a Sean Wade light. He was one of those guys who's um, really fast. He's got a corner build, but at safety, can zoom, zoom all around the field, but just does but couldn't tackle at all. Like I watched the Iowa state game and Charlie Kalar was just like manhandling him. It was just it was like when you make the 99 overall player in Madden, you hit the truck stick and yeah, it was like that bad tackling wise, but a guy that I'm not sure if he's the fit for the two, uh, too high system, but it's a guy that we've been touting this whole entire pro- uh, process. When I first saw this report, I'm like, who is he and why does he have a borderline uh, high second, early first round grade? And, that, um, and then lo and behold, uh, after we get the report done and after we watch the film, everybody else starts getting to the film. He gets a senior bowl invite. He balls out. And that's Richie Grant. Uh, just a great, We love Richie Grant. Yeah. Just from both the, as a box safety, as a free safety, we see him having just those really great instincts to be able to track the ball and just always know where the ball's going to go. Uh, a really good tackler, which is what you're going to need when you're only 200 pounds. And 
just kind of that coverage ability to either do well both in um, deep zones and in short zones. So it was like we kind of found this guy that we feel is an all-around corner, and we were so happy when he goes to the senior bowl, and it, he was one of the guys who shot up the boards uh, the most. And it was like, we already knew. We already knew what he was. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he's, he's a guy who um, I don't know if – Early second, I, early second might be a little high when the Broncos are on the board there, but it wouldn't even shock me at all if, if he went to to the Broncos with that ninth pick in the second round. Um, if you're looking for a guy in the third round, uh, you might look to another guy who uh, was at the Senior Bowl and really uh, affirmed our good opinion of him, and that's Christian Uphoff, the Illinois State safety. Might be a little bit of might be a little bit hard for. Broncos fans to get some film on him, but uh, when when we watched him and took uh, that tape on, he was 20 pounds lighter than he showed up to at the Senior Bowl. So I think he was listed at like 190. I think he gained 23 pounds before coming to the Senior Bowl with this season off, and he carried it well. Um, he's a guy who he's got really good zone awareness, really good athleticism, comes downhill quickly. Uh, we liked his ability to impact at all three levels. Uh, we didn't think that this was a guy with a lot of weaknesses. We thought mainly his weakness really was tackling ability, which is is tough. But, I mean, prospects are going to have flaws once you get to that third and fourth round range. Mm-hmm. Um, another guy who's in there who we think is a versatile guy, who is a box guy, deep safety, slot guy, pre-snap communicator, athletic guy, who has a great tackler is James Wiggins, the Cincinnati safety. And if you want to talk about safety aesthetic, man, what if you just see a pic, I think uh, our guy, Mark Jarvis at what's on draft on Twitter posted a, a picture of James Wiggins aesthetic earlier today. I think he was watching him and man, a, a swaggy looking player. He's a, a guy who really good anticipation, Quick twitch guy, physical, spatially aware, uh, gets through trash really well. Uh, his his range is probably merely adequate, so he's not a guy who's impacting the third level a ton. But in that cover two or cover four scheme, I, this is a guy who I think can, can thrive that you can get on in the third round or maybe even early in the fourth. Another fun safety. Um that I feel that we should talk about is Divine Diablo um, or oh, Divine yeah. Diablo. It, However you say it. Yeah. Um, he's one of those tweener players where he's he's 6'3 and 3'8 and 226 pounds. So he, he wouldn't boy. be out of place as a small as a small linebacker. Yeah, he's but, way bigger than Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. Like, way bigger. Yeah, but he moves so well. Like, we gave him a seven for three level impact. Like we think he can impact the uh, in the run game. We think we can uh, be smart or have an impact in the short passing game. And we think he, even though he's that big, we still think he has the range of a good NFL uh, free safety. It's just he looks kind of clueless out there, and he just can't really swing his hips just uh, yet in man coverage. So it's like you have a guy who has the size, speed, but if he can learn the game, he might have like that Pro Bowl potentially might be kind of a guy for you, or he just 
can't figure it out on defense and wax people on special teams. And I think yeah, you take in the third round. Diablo is a guy who he's one of the rare 6.0 grades that we got, which uh, here's another spoiler of the book, but some intrigue to add. A 6.0 grade is that rare grade where we feel that this player has elite talent, but needs some time to refine something. So it, whether that's due to he didn't play much due to injuries or something in the scheme was holding him back or he needs to improve instinctually, it's someone that we think is a lower level guy right now coming into the league, but has these high end traits to maybe even be a pro bowler with some seasoning. So for, for Diablo, he's a guy that, I mean, it, the instincts may never come. He'll still be effective if they don't because he's just so big and fast. Uh, but if they do, he's got that pro ball potential. He's almost in that way, while they're not <laughs> all that similar players, but in that way, he's like uh, Obi Melifonwu coming out, who was way overdrafted. I, I think teams have learned their lesson about that. But if you see Diablo early in the fourth round and your team takes him, uh, you should be stoked as a fan because you guys just got a guy who can be a core special teamer right now. Um, and if he makes it, he's going to be great. Well, and the one thing I, I, one thing that really stands out to me about Diablo with that situation then is he would be able to sit behind, potentially be able to sit behind Kareem Jackson. Justin Simmons probably isn't going anywhere. God help me if he does. And he'd be learning under Fangio and Ed Donatel for a year. And they're, two of the better DB coaches around. So I, I would feel Absolutely. really good about that. Like a raw guy who needs to kind of season, I'm cool with it if he has a year to season. Like that sounds great. Uh, he was one of, I think, five 6.0s in the whole book. So it's not a very common grade that we gave out. So one other need that's kind of like weird for the Broncos, and like there's actually a couple of these, but this one's really notable. The Broncos have Jawan James this year. He opted out last year. Because he opted out, his contract pushes forward. They can't cut him. There's It makes no sense to cut him, essentially. That said, they just gave Garrett Bowles an extension. So in 2022, they will probably have to move Juwan James because of cap stuff. So right tackle is kind of a need, plus depth at tackle is a need. So it's another one of those positions. Um, my big question, again, this is something that I came up with when I've looked at a lot of guides, is a lot of guys will play left tackle, but you'll read in the guide, oh, he's probably a guard in the league. Or he'll be listed at tackle, and you'll say, oh, he can only be a right tackle. Your guys' guide actually says, like, he's played left tackle. We think he could probably switch to the other side. Or he played left tackle. He fits in a gap scheme. Or he played le he played right tackle in a zone scheme. We think he could play either. You, know, you guys actually lay that out. Um, One of the things I have to ask is if a guy played left tackle, how do you really determine how comfortable you feel with trying to project him to another side? Um. So if, if I'm projecting a guy, so like, uh, oh, I, go ahead, Joe. I just, oh, I just, I want to be full disclosure. I cheat. A lot of times what I do is if he has experience playing somewhere else, it helps me a lot because again, like Absolutely. if I, if, if I don't get to see a lot of his film and I don't know, I'll, I'll watch and I'll watch footwork, but if I don't know, so, mm -hmm. so yeah. So yeah, exactly. With a guy like Rashawn Slater, where he was a left tackle in his previous season, but had played right tackle before you feel pretty comfortable projecting him to that right tackle spot. I know some people are projecting him at guard, center. They might even project him at freaking tight end with the amount of different projections I'm seeing. Um, but he's a right tackle for us. Uh, but 
guys, when, when you're projecting a guy to the other side, you don't exactly know. Like a, a scout or a coach isn't going to exactly know how they project on the other side until they really get him in the building and work him at that side. Because if a guy's worked on one side his whole career, they the kick slides are going to be entirely different. And not every guy can pick that up. Um, not every guy has the ability to just in, rework their entire like mental because these offensive linemen that have been playing left tackle their whole career. I mean, if you're playing left tackle your whole career in college, you're probably playing left tackle your whole time in high school too. And down on the line, um, unless you're coming from a power tackle scheme, shout out to those split backs veer teams that are no longer in existence. Uh, but I digress. Uh, uh, that's one of the things that you don't exactly know, but one of the context clues is going to be how nasty is this guy? Like, can he go from left to right? Is he is he a nasty guy? Is he a guy who I think I am comfortable with my running back going behind? That That's usually one of the main things is, can this guy be like a true lead blocker? Uh, left tackles, you really want them to be the guy who is the elite pass blocker. You want, I, I mean, obviously they're the blindside guy. So if you're looking at our sheet, and we have a low reactive athleticism grade on the guy, we're probably not projecting him to stay at left tackle. That's really like how it is. Like if, if they're reactive and if their reactive athleticism is that low, we're probably putting him at guard. And one of the things I think we did well is we converted all those guards within the guide already. Yes. Like Thank if they so played much. tackle in college, but we think he's a guard, he's already in there at guard. Um, if we think he can stay at tackle or even if we think that he has guard tackle flexion is one of those things where if they're a swing guard and tackle, which is going to be necessary for most of the depth players in this league, because I mean, rosters are only 53 men and you can only keep like eight to nine linemen on most teams, which I really wish they could have more. Some, some guys carry 10. I, I don't think anyone carries 11, which is sad. Um, but if yeah, that reactive athleticism is the number one thing, and then really you want to see if they're going to play right tackle. Are they tenacious? Do they have the play strength for it? Um, how good is their run block technique? Uh, things like that. So so who? Because I don't think the uh, granted maybe Panay Sewell falls to nine, and the Broncos surprise the world and take him. But no because way. but because no. yeah, but you know I can hope. But but because Dewan James is there. I can't see them taking a a left tack or a, a right tackle at nine unless it's Sewell. Um, maybe Slater they would shock the world probably because I was looking at Slater. I whole thing, but on day two, day three, I think it's a pretty strong possibility because they have Mike Munchak. So even if a guy is a year away, they could feasibly take him, and if he pans out over the course of this year, they have a potential replacement. If not, they have a swing tackle. That kind of thing. Does anybody kind of jump mm. out at you that kind of fits that yeah. mold? Absolutely. I got, I got someone for you. Um, Deontay Smith, who's another guy who we were high on coming into the senior bowl. And he really reaffirmed our opinion of how much we liked him. And he, he got on the radar, the radar of a lot of people who uh, didn't really love him. He's a guy who, if I'm just pulled up my summary, Deontay Smith is a scheme versus is scheme versatile, but projects best as a swing tackle in a gap heavy scheme with the potential to become a, a starting right tackle. That's exactly what you guys want. He's, he's a guy who 
very long limbs. He's a little bit light for the position. He weighed in um, at 6.050, so six foot five exactly, and 294 pounds. And he, at times, was even lighter than that um, at ECU. But he has the frame to add more. He just has a really skinny torso, which was very, um, very interesting to see in person. Um, not that his body type is necessarily bad, but he's a guy who probably needs to add 10 pounds, 15 pounds before you want to put him in as a starter. Um, he's a, a guy who I gave fives and sixes to across the board. So for reference to the fans who haven't just rushed over and bought our guide after listening to the first 15 minutes of this, um, five is adequate for a backup, whereas six is a starter who helps his team win. Um, so this guy has, he doesn't have any of these critical traits that I was, um, super worried about. His main problem was that he like will over rely on his length, but I mean, Hey, you got the length, like what those length met, uh, measurement numbers are really gonna, um, attract him to a lot of teams. I, I think this is a guy who is probably, um, gonna be a, a sleeper guy who people on the draft night uh, on day two late in the third round in those comp picks around there he's gonna go people are gonna have no idea who he is and he's gonna have a long career as a swing tackle who can potentially start at right tackle i actually uh going into this i had him circled because i read your you had read your report earlier today so uh is is there anybody that jumps out to you paul um Well, let's see. The tackle that I did who uh, might be a fun guy for uh, right tackle is Jackson Carmen. Now, we also kind of have to do that projection where you um, he played left tackle his entire career. He was that five-star recruit who is just massive. Like, he's huge. I think he's going to probably come in at around 6'6", 340. Yeah, 6'5", 335 is what he was listed at. And... Yeah, he shows it sometimes. Like, there are just plays where he just wins just because he's bigger and stronger than everybody else, and he doesn't really need to do anything more than that. And, like, that's, like, good for college, but his technique is just so not there yet. It's He'll... When he goes up to his second level blocks, he's, he's going to hesitate because he wasn't going to know which whether to take the linebacker or move up to the safety. He's not going to have his hand place uh, hands in the right place. But when you have a guy who is that big, that strong, and that quick, because he moves very very well laterally, like they'll run like schemes, um, screens, and like. Uh, sweeps his way he will get out to the perimeter and it's just like a train hitting somebody it's just he's a locomotive on a rail and just destroys whatever linebacker comes out there because he's just so comfortable in space and those are really good like starting level that's like a really good place to start but even though he moves really well laterally he doesn't really move that quickly backwards which is what you need when you need want to do vertical drop steps. And he really just doesn't have that flexibility that say another large player like uh, Orlando Brown would have. He can get his helmet a little, he can have his pads a little too high and can get beaten underneath. So do you think that, do you think some of that is coachable or do you think that that's just going to always be an issue for him? 
Well, that's well, that's one of those difficult things. Yeah, that that there's a reason we we have a full section for every player of what we need to learn about because. Uh, as a scout, you have what you see on film. There, there's a whole bunch of stuff they're not going to be asked to do that they're going to be able need to be to be able to do to succeed at the NFL level. And we're only going to have a part of a picture. And I would rather say I don't know if this guy can do that because I don't know, rather than just say he can't do that because I've never seen it. Well, so, and that's again, that's one of those things too that I really like about your guide. Uh, a couple, I. I uh, Tim Jenkins does a lot of quarterback stuff. And one of the things he, he did a guide on Trey Lance a while back that I read and I loved it for one of the similar reasons that with this is he mentioned things you need to see in a workout. And granted this year, because workouts are so kind of, kind of tossed out because of COVID, it just becomes a giant unknown, but you have to admit that you don't know. I think admitting that is important because otherwise you have, you have confidence in something that you're just guessing on. So I think the fact that you have something you need to see more of and you're, you're kind of open about that is important. Mm-hmm. When we've shown this to scouts um, and directors of personnel on NFL teams and coordinators and whatnot, um, and shown them our format in general, that's the thing that they liked the most is that we had that what we need to learn section that we didn't just assume things about players based on other, we didn't try to use context clues necessarily we, we acknowledged that those context clues were there, but we were not going to be definitive about things that we hadn't seen. And those scouts really appreciated that because that's something that they do. They have to say, hey, coach, I haven't seen this when, I, when they're reporting back to their coaches to make the decision. that I haven't seen this, so we need to know da-da-da. Um, Paul, don't, what's the example that you typically use for this? Oh, I use um. There's there's two I always use. Um, it was probably some draft pundit. I'm not sure if it was Miller or just like one of the mainstream ones. He was like, "Big concern with this guy is he can't catch." And then I like go and check on PFF or the stats. I'm like, he had ten targets. How do you know he can't catch? And then the other big one was last year when everybody was like jumping on Justin Herbert and saying that he's going to be a bust. And they were saying, oh, all he does is uh, throw screens and he doesn't go through progressions. And I came to the conclusion that, or I figured out that the college coaches are not um, training their players to get to the NFL. They are teaching them how to win right now in their system. So there's going to be a whole bunch of things, especially for quarterbacks that Oh yeah, he he doesn't go through progressions. Well, the scheme isn't asking him to go through progressions. Oh, he throws a lot of schemes. Well, they probably because they have some pretty good playmakers out there, and they think they can win on the outside with those plays. Or um, they have checks in their offense when they see this look, they automatically call on the screen to the outside. So I just saw this, and everyone was like saying that these things are weaknesses, and I'm like. No, and then lo and behold, he goes into the NFL and he's asked to do different things. And wait, he actually has some competency in that, and he kind of showed it. And that's kind of why I feel it's very important to say those kind of things. And that's something I'm very proud of because, as far as I know, that is an original idea that I had. That was like something I've took that I don't think any other scout has ever done. And that was like um, that's where I feel I've laid my biggest fingerprint on this guide is putting that in the floor. Well, let's say no other scout that is not in the NFL. Yes, no, like no media scouts, none of the people that yeah. uh yeah. Well, and well and I think your I think your point too is an important one because I can't watch Ohio State and not and not come away being like they're running a college scheme. Like on both sides of the ball they do. 
And granted, a lot again, it works for him. And a lot of the stuff, like some of the stuff, translates. But Baron Browning, like you can't watch Baron Browning and think his role is going to be completely different in the NFL than it is at Ohio State. Um, but no, with Baron Browning in mind, though, uh, where are you guys at with the linebackers? Because that's the other defensive position. And it's kind of weird because Denver has Alexander Johnson, who is an elite run defender, pretty damn good. And when he came in onto the scene in 2009, he was pretty good in coverage. But I think, and again, I think the Broncos basically admitted as much last year, they want a coverage backer to go with him. Like they tried to trade for Patrick Queen before the Ravens got him. At one point, they tried to sign Joe Schobert before he ended up signing. Uh, at one point, they were pursuing Corey Littleton. Um, I know Christian Kirk, I think it's Christian Kirksey, Kirksley from the Packers. He just got cut. The Broncos were sniffing around him for the same reasons. So I, again, assuming that George Payton doesn't completely change the scale here, I think they're chasing a coverage backer. Um, I don't know necessarily if it's going to be at nine, but are there any guys that kind of jump out to you that really stand out as somebody who could be a good coverage backer? I mean, yeah, there's, so with this class, I, I'm really the, the linebacker guy for us. Um, with, with this class, it's there's a couple good guys up top. Really, um, the only guys that we see as first-round players are Micah Parsons and Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. We're actually a lot lower on uh, Zayvon Collins than most other people. I, we, we speaking, like Nick Bolton. You're speaking to the choir mm -hmm. here. I am lower on Zayvon Collins as well. We have Zayvon Collins with, I think, a third-round grade, which people um, – I mean, we don't grade by the third round, but he on our big board, he would be a third round guy. Um, but there's there's a, a collection of guys in that 6.3 to 6.1 range for us that we think are just ideal coverage linebackers in today's NFL scheme. I'll just run through a list. Um, Jabril Cox out of LSU really proved it at the Senior Bowl. That's my uh, boy. Chaz Surratt, he's a guy who um, could have come out last year probably didn't improve um, on his stock all that much this year, although he did improve his instincts. It, his Virginia Tech film was the worst I've ever seen of any linebacker. He just got absolutely demolished by uh, Derrissaw. So he was a guy who I was super high on. I watched that film as like one of the like three or four that I watched this year to like update my understanding of him. And I was like, ooh, like it just showed every single problem that he has like in pursuit, navigating through traffic while block shedding, like everything. Uh, but but he's a guy who can be a high-end pass coverage guy day one. It, just don't ask him to set the point of attack or shed a block. Um, but then guys like Garrett Wallow, who were higher on than other people, he's a really athletic safety convert from TCU, who another guy who's not great at block shedding, but just lean, athletic, aggressive, good communicator, great in space, sideline to sideline, good pass coverage. Um, Pete Werner, Ohio State, another really good pass coverage linebacker who um, – I forget who Shea compared him to. Oh, she compared him to a, a lesser Matt Milano, which would be a great addition for the Broncos. I would um, take a Matt Milano. Yeah, you would. Anyone would take a <laughs> Matt Milano. And then one of the guys who no one has graded him as a linebacker except us, but I like him as a linebacker, and that's uh, Talanoa Hufanga. I saw that. USC. Safety, yeah, us having him at linebacker is a little a little crazy, but um well we we think that he's a guy who's really that coverage linebacker. Like he really should be 
in that role. We, we don't see him as a, a safety at the next level. We see him as a guy who, I mean, that role is becoming more and more popular. I think Raiders have Jeff Heath as a linebacker this year, and they, they really like that safety linebacker guy coming on um, in those like hybrid dime nickel packages where you keep one linebacker on and bring that second guy who's just great in space. Um, that's a role that the Broncos definitely could use with all the um, tight ends. I mean, we've been talking about how to go against the tight ends in this division. Like there's no one guy you're not drafting one of these linebackers and then like, boom, that's it. Like now we can cover Travis Kelsey and Darren Waller because we got this guy. Like there's no guy like that. Um, it doesn't exist. Like if someone like that existed, that'd be the prototype. And we'd like, be like, hurrah, everyone that is this prototype. We love them now. Um, but if, if you have a couple of these guys in, that'll, that'll help. I was going to say, if Micah Parsons could, like, fuse into Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, then maybe, maybe <laughs> just combine their skills and powers. Uh, but no, I I mean, I, I thought, so as far as joke goes, because a lot of Broncos country really likes him for that same reason that you just mentioned, that he can erase Travis Kelsey. I, I wonder, for, for the... And, and again, like I, I I'm gonna ask you because you probably watch more of him than I have. Well, I honestly I know you've watched more of him than I have. I've had trouble getting his tape. Uh the Broncos do run like 65% of the time they're nickel. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that he could have a role. I have questions about how he'd fit if they're ever brought into a base three four. That's a question yeah. for him. Um and, and so I, I, have... I think he's oh, go ahead. Go Sorry. ahead. No, no, no. I was gonna say I think that. JOK is a guy who changes the complexion of your defense because now you're basing out of nickel. If he's your third linebacker, he's going to play as your rover. So, like, you don't really need to have a nickel guy out there because he can facilitate both roles. Um, He's a guy who, like, some teams are going to pass on just because they're not willing to change their defense to put him in that scheme. Um, Like, I've compared the role that he should have to the role that the Panthers put Jeremy Chin in this year, where they really played to all of his strengths. They put him in as that that rover, box, linebacker, slot, safety, hybrid. And if you're willing to play him in that role, he's going to succeed. If you're trying to pigeonhole JOK as a will backer in a traditional 4-3 um, and you're putting him in the box, like – he's going to struggle to shed blocks and you're not playing to his strengths at all, where you're not putting him in a position to use his amazing play speed. And, but you want him to be on that edge. Like if he's a blitzer, if he's covering in the past, if he's a weak side pursuer, like that's where you want him. So I, I think that putting him as a Rover, like it's going to, force a DC to be really creative. I'm not sure a guy like Fangio would be willing to do something like that. I mean, Fangio's like, it's one of those like defensive coordinators. You can teach an old dog new tricks because defensive coordinators have to adjust on the fly to the offenses that they've seen. And if you're a DC that can't learn new tricks, then you've been out of the league for years now at this point. But I don't see Fangio willing to change his scheme so drastically 
to have this guy like and, and if you're going to draft him early in the first like I, i'm assuming that the broncos would be trading back to take him and not taking him at nine if you're doing that like you're saying we're taking this player in the first round we're investing that he's going to be a pillar of our defense yep. and that's one of those things where I, I can't see Vic Fangio doing that. It, it was it was one of the big questions I had about Isaiah Simmons last year was I, I feel like Isaiah Simmons' ideal role is a similar situation. And I and I didn't know if, if the Broncos were going to take him that high and then do that. And then I was like, well, if they're going to play him inside in the box and make him play, I feel like it might be not a wasted pick, but it's not ideal. Like you're not you're not setting him up for success to make the most of what you're picking him to do. Well, and that's the thing. They they don't have, like, Isaiah Simmons at least has the build to yeah. do that. Not that putting him in that role is ideal for him, but, like, he can do that. Like, that's not something that you want six foot one, two 215 pounds, soaking wet Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa to be doing. Yeah. Another thing that I saw was that Jim Nagy tweeted out that if you're considering taking uh, JOK, you need to talk to your defensive coordinator and you need to know that he has a plan for it before you take him, which I thought was right. But there were a lot of people in the comments who were like, no, the defensive coordinator should automatically should just take a super talented player and build that team around him. And I don't think people understand like how big of a shift that uh, shift that would be, or they just think that, oh, you can just play draft that guy and just have him change positions all the time um, based on the situation without knowing how difficult it is to learn one position, know the checks at one position, let alone go to multiple positions. And I think they're like, uh, these hybrid linebacker safeties are almost always everybody's on draft Twitter's favorite players. But in order to be a true, like, jack of all trades, you need to have, like, the instincts and the mind power to be able to understand multiple positions, multiple roles, and multiple formations. And as we kind of saw with Isaiah Simmons, that can be a lot. He didn't see, like, the field until the second, ha- uh, second half of the year because he has the ability to do a lot. But if he can't mentally process a lot, then you're just going to have a – uh, fast player playing slow. Yeah, that right, Searle? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have slight connection with the Cardinals franchise, and I've been told by guys within their organization that he they had just given him so much to do in the offseason with so little time. From what people in the Cardinals org have told me, Isaiah Simmons was just swimming in work that they gave him. Like they gave him so many different positions to learn before the season. And with such an abbreviated off season with uh, all of what everyone's been dealing with, we all know why it's been an abbreviated off off season. Um, He just had trouble even understanding one position, let alone the four different spots that they wanted to put him in. So I would expect him next year to come in with, a better understanding of their scheme, a better understanding of what they want him to do, and a better understanding of the speed of the NFL game, I think that we'll start to see him be more of an impact consistently. I, I do too. Uh, when, when Again, this is an aside off that, but when, when Isaiah Simmons was drafted, everyone, a lot of Broncos Twitter was basically like, oh, Vance Joseph is going to ruin him. He, he you know, He's going to break him. And it's like in 2018, Will Parks looked like a, like a sleeper potential pro bowler down the road playing a role that I saw as kind of like the perfect fit for Isaiah Simmons. It just didn't, it just didn't happen as a rookie year. So like, 
I, hearing that from you, like that gives me a lot of hope for him because I do like him as a prospect. I just didn't know if I liked him for the Broncos defense. Um, so Von Miller, Von Miller's status is obviously kind of the biggest question. Uh, and again, if he gets cut over the uh, over this next couple of days, I will probably change that. But Von Miller's status is like kind of a looming huge question over the Broncos. Uh, and honestly, like I don't think you can replace him anyway. But but the Broncos, even if they keep him on the roster, he he's coming off a serious injury. Didn't play last year. He's older. His contract runs out after the year. So again, it's another one of those positions where it's a short-term need potentially because they need depth, but also definitely a long-term need depending on what they do with Von Miller. I really like this edge class. I don't think, I don't know if necessarily there's a Chase Young or a Joey Bosa or anything like that at the top. I like Quiddy Pay a lot, but I don't know if he's necessarily on that same tier as those guys in my mind. But I like, I like in terms of, yeah. In, In terms of like Fangio fits though, I think this class is pretty deep. There's a lot of guys who can play in space. Um, and that's an important factor to what Fangio actually asks his linebackers to do. Because, And I've actually just started looking at a Fangio playbook. He he designates the positions down like a 4-3. Like he has essentially what is an end. And then he has a guy who plays as a backer. And that's you see that on the field. Bradley Chubb plays in space every once in a while. But he's essentially a defensive end. And then you see Malik Reed. And Malik Reed will actually move out with slot receivers occasionally and he'll be out there in space covering them in a short zone um i assume that they were they would be looking for a guy to play that role if they if they move on mm-hmm. who jumps out yep. to you as like a quote-unquote like a super malik reed or a malik reed type i got a super malik reed for you um who fits that role and who also could maybe be there in the second round um and that's joseph asai out of texas He's a guy who had a lot of coverage reps last year before uh, changing his position this year. And he is the guy who I think has the highest motor in the draft. This is a guy who, if you bring him into your system, he's going to immediately just make your team so much faster. I was sending Paul just clip after clip after clip while I was watching him a couple weeks ago of just, this is a crazy motor play that you wouldn't see someone make. This is a crit just over and over. And um, I talked with, Pat Flaherty, who is a two-time Super Bowl-winning offensive line coach the other day, and we watched a couple different edge prospects. And even from the limited clips that we watched, he was like, yeah, this guy's motor is crazy. Um, So he's one of those guys who you want him as that 3-4 outside linebacker type probably because he does have the coverage chops. He's best suited in a pass rush role. So, like, get – Get him in a pass rush role as soon as possible. Um, he's got great upfield burst, good mental processing, good tackling. Um, I, I think that, that it's a guy who doesn't have a lot of weaknesses besides the fact that he's not super stout at the point of attack. So I think if you take him slightly off ball like that, um, that's not as big of a weakness. So um, he, he's a guy who I think if he's there in the second round, he'd be an optimal fit for the Broncos. There are so many good, like, undersized pass rushers in the second to fourth rounds this year. Just, like, going – I'm just going through and, like, looking at how many players we gave, like, a um, a 6-4 of sufficient uh, sufficient to start and win with at the NFL level. And there's just – there's so many people that you have to choose from. Uh, a guy I did was Jalen Phillips. I'm sure uh, you've been – you guys have probably been mocked to him at that uh, second uh, – 
209 pick. I did him, and you can see that 99th percentile athlete, but he's got four concussions in his career. I wouldn't touch him personally and his uh, instincts. And he's kind of a one-year wonder. Like, yeah, when he's just let loose to be a a super athlete, yeah, he's going to do super athlete things. But North Carolina ran for like 300 yards going his direction. So – there, there's definitely some issues. I do not view him as a first rounder on tape, but when you take in his in uh, his injury history, then that's a guy I would avoid. Uh, Quincy Roche looked really good at the Senior Bowl, just giving Alex Leatherwood fits on reps. Uber productive. When Uber I watched, productive. when when I was watching Phillips, I kept coming away thinking Quincy Roche actually makes more sense for the Broncos. So like yeah, he's, 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 he's that three four outside linebacker. Yep, I love him. Uh, but but Roche, that's the thing is he doesn't have a lot of experience in pass coverage. So that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we um, would need to learn about him before he becomes that three four outside linebacker. Um, he's just too light at this point. He weighed in at two forty three at uh, just a hair under six foot three. So like he's a he's a very light prospect. So he makes a lot more sense in that three, four outside linebacker role. Um, I I watched him recently all the way through. And I think that he's a awesome pass rusher um, who should only be on the field on pass rush situations. And I, I think that putting him as a, as a more situational guy is going to be better off because this guy was um, one of the lowest motor players that I've seen. So I think that, uh, in terms of like consistent effort, it's not really there for him. So I think his he's gonna be very good in a very like defined role as a pass rusher. But I don't think he I see him going outside of that. So I'm he's he's a guy who you'll have a niche for. He can be on your team for a while, but he's not gonna be a pillar of your organization. He, he's one of those guys I like in terms of like uh, they extend Von Miller. They have Bradley Chubb on a fifth year option, probably extending him. Malik Reed, if they do that, Malik Reed is playing out one more year in an RFA tag and he's gone. Roche would come mm-hmm. in as like essentially the third guy, and I like that. Um, I, I have quite, yeah. Uh, one guy I, I have to ask you about, Cyril, because I know you saw, I know you were the one to write the report on is Rashad, Hamilcar Rashad. What do you think of him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's he has the weirdest name. It's Hemica. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I, I read all. Yeah, these no worries. I don't hear him. No worries. Um, yeah, I I would have had no idea. I I originally picked him because I was like, oh, he's got an awesome name and he had a ton of production that jumped out so, to me um, too. <laughs> yeah, and but this year his production dropped off a cliff. I think he had zero sacks this year, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Um. And one of the reasons for that is he gained a considerable amount of weight. So he wasn't quite as explosive. He weighed the senior bowl at 254 after he was listed at 238 um, this past season. So he, he's a guy who gained a lot of weight. But, I mean, when we're talking about that 3-4 outside linebacker, like this is the guy. Like, well, while we don't have pass coverage in our primary and secondary traits, like, this guy's a very good pass coverage guy. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, he can track with fast running backs out to the flat very easily, which is, like, almost, like, the top of what a four, a 3-4 outside linebacker is going to be asked to do. Like, w- within what pass coverage roles he'd be asked, 
he'd be phenomenal phenomenal at those um i think one of the things that we we need to know if this guy's peaked or not and if he can still maintain that explosiveness at this 245 or 254 pound weight because i mean speed and length was how he mostly uh, made his money like he was shedding blocks keeping those long arms out he had a good mixture of pass rush moves and an adequate bull rush but he, he's not a guy who was like winning with strength overall like by any means um he and it wasn't a guy who showed me a ton of toughness either like i i thought that he would shy away from the more physical aspects of the game a little bit which is something that uh worries you a little bit but i, I think that this is a guy who can come in and be a, a low-end starter for you. I, I don't see, like, super high-end traits for him overall unless, like, he can really rediscover his form. But even then, uh, when I originally watched him, I noticed that, like, his pressure rate was totally unsustainable. So I expected a drop in production this year, but I didn't expect, like, the it to fall off a cliff. And I know from the scouts that I've talked to, they're going to take the 2021 or the 2020 season a little bit with a grain of salt for the guys who really fell off because for a lot of guys um, like Rashad or like Amir Smith Marset, um, there's like extenuating circumstances that uh, can come into play. And so I think that he's going to have a lot of questions to answer in interviews that are going to define what his stock ultimately ends up as, whether he's a day two or a day three guy in the in the eyes of teams. But I mean, for a three four team that doesn't need him to start right away, I think he could be a pretty good fit for the Broncos. Paul, is there anybody else that we I need to hear about? Do you want to hear about Ellerson Smith? Okay, Ellerson Smith is uh probably one of the strangest um reports or. One of the more interesting ones, because when I uh, when I was uh, originally watching him, he looked like a stick. It was like he's six foot four, he's super long, super lean, and uh, I heard like I got some like heard inside rumors that uh, in twenty nineteen he was playing at around six six two thirty, and he was just had no strength. Like he could bull rush like a little bit, like but. Once a blocker got onto him in the run game, he was toast, and he was toast against FCS teams. And then he comes into the senior bowl at 262. So it was like everything I saw was like, I don't want to say invalidated, but it's like now he had 30 pounds on him, and he's a completely different uh, different human be- different human being. But, yeah, he's one of those guys who has an incredible first stop and incredible length. And if you think that you can take a guy who has those two traits and mold that into a situational pass rusher, then that's a guy for you to tar- uh, you to target in the late rounds, especially if he can run in like the four sevens, four sixes at his current weight, and you can kind of prove that he's like that freak athlete at Northern Iowa. And I mean, Northern Iowa, they have a really great weight weight program. They had Spencer uh, Spencer Brown as kind of a very high-end athlete. They are kind of developing a reputation as being the freak FCS factory. They got another guy, uh, Isaiah Weston, for next year, 6'4", 210, wide receiver, who apparently runs pretty well. So if you want to take a shot at a freak, that can that can be a spot for you. 
Last thing before I let you guys go. Assuming it's not a quarterback, who is the ideal pick at nine for the Broncos? Oh, the ideal pick at nine. Um, and be prepared because people might get mad at you if you don't answer what they say. No, no pressure. All right. I, I don't know who the ideal pick is. We are doing a mock draft with the XTB team where we've assigned uh, players or we've assigned scouts to be the GMs of these teams. And awesome. they're going to be reporting on the team needs of everyone. So that's going to be part of version two of our book. We're going to have all of what we think the biggest team needs are. And we're going to have um, what schemes they run, what their draft tendencies have been, things like that, so that we can really um, educate everyone. And, and in terms of like the casual fan can see like, oh, I don't know what the Panthers might do at eight right before. What have their tendencies been? Um, your your Broncos fan can find out what the Panthers might do. But I will say that the guy who in our in our uh, rolling mock right now, which is um, nearing the end of the third round, um, I'll give you all of who the Broncos have taken at nine. At, we don't even have it listed what the number is, but I'll, I'll give you the Broncos round one, two, and three picks that we have so far. Please do. Um, we have... Micah Parsons at nine. Okay. Which uh, some Broncos fans will be stoked on, and some will curse our names. I'm not going to curse um, your name, but I'm. It's a little bit of a oh kind of a feeling, but not not at totally you. Totally understandable. I, I'm I'm one of those guys that I don't like positional value of linebacker in the top ten, but that's just that's. A hey man, I think that Micah Parsons could fit in that freaking Von Miller role almost. Like I think he's, heard, yeah, I, I think I mean, he's that type of player. I mean, I think he's he, that type of player. I think he can play any linebacker spot. And I mean, if he does, like I, I like it a lot more. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if so, if you're keeping Von Miller and you're putting him there and an inside linebacker and like switching him off there, like love that at nine. Um, in the second round, Kelvin Joseph, who is a guy that uh, his nickname is Boss Man Fat, guy that a lot of people uh, are starting to finally get eyes on. Super athletic guy, but. You know, I'm not actually sure if I love him there because I've heard that he's a better um, second and third level guy than a first level guy. And if you guys are running that much cover too, Kelvin Joseph uh, may not be the right pick there. But then in the third round, uh, Richard LeCount, who's perfect for that too high yep. uh, scheme out of Georgia. I, It's one way to make the defense younger for sure. And again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, like I said, guys, if you have not already in the time listening to this gone and got, uh, if listening to this, you guys have not actually gone and bought the draft guide yet. Go buy it now. It's at expandtheboxscore.com. You'll see the draft guide, purchase it. I cannot recommend it enough. Also make a point to follow them on Twitter. Cyril is at C C Y R I L P E N N four. Paul is the foot Paul, the F-O-O-T-P-A-U-L. Thank you so much for your time, guys. It was a blast. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank we you. appreciate it.